Welcome to 15 Minutes of Feminism, part of our On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine platform. This is a show where we report, rebel, and you know we tell it like it is. Consider this. The British government paid £20 million, the equivalent of about £17 billion today, to compensate slave owners for the capital that they lost associated with the abolishing of slavery. Now, this incredibly huge payout was about 40% of the government's budget, and they continued to pay it until 2015, when finally they had paid off all of their debts, not to people who had been enslaved or their legacies, but to people who had done the enslavement. So on today's show, we are talking about the African diaspora. In August, the United Nations General Assembly moved to create a permanent forum on people of African descent. There was pushback. Yet on an international level, advocates know this is more important than ever. All over the world, there is a demand for a reckoning with anti-blackness. And part of that conversation happens to be reparations. So joining me today to talk about these issues is Dr. Amara Inya. Dr. Inya is a public policy expert and strategist. She is also the managing director of Diaspora Rising, a transnational advocacy organization working on issues of concern to the global black diaspora around the world. Dr. Inya, slavery's colonial legacy has impacted every aspect of black life. Can you give people some reminder of what that looks like? Well, it looks like, I mean, when we look at around the world, the conditions of Black people in any country that they're in are really struggling. When we, when we look at uh, metrics such as employment, um, access to health care, the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, the climate crisis, Black people around the world are bearing the brunt of that, but it's really the result of structural and systemic racism. It's the result of capitalism that is really impacting the quality of life for Black folks wherever we find ourselves. So break that down a little bit more because there's such resistance as we've seen in the United States, in Europe, to understanding the legacy and lingering vestiges of slavery. Many don't understand that powerful impact. Sure. I mean, I would say there's probably some willful uh, refusal to acknowledge the present day impact of the transatlantic slave trade of slavery and the need to recognize how institutions have actually been built to make sure that Black people in particular were at the lowest rungs of society. So um, we can. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You said institutions built to actually ensure this about African-Americans and Afro-Europeans and Afro-Caribbeans. Didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's some powerful, you know, sort of gems that you just dropped into the conversation. It's important that we acknowledge and, and speak about the intentionality of these systems and these policies and these institutions, because we have to know that the same intentionality that was used to create them, it is also necessary to dismantle them and to replace them with systems that are actually just, with institutions that actually reflect uh, justice. And that's the work that we have before us. But the first step is getting uh, getting the acknowledgement and moving away from the willful sort of ignorance or the willful refusal to actually acknowledge that past and how it affects the present. So Dr. Inya, you are just breaking it down. And there's a piece that's really important in the story. Many people presume that the story of slavery itself is one in which Black people were kidnapped from the shores of Africa and brought to the United States or that Europeans took 
uh, black people to the Caribbean, but there's a deeper story. How do black people get to South America, to Brazil? What's the story in the other places that people don't look? Well, I think the story is of, you know, first recognizing how Black folks arrived in Brazil, in Central and South America, in the Caribbean, through the Atlantic slave trade. Um, And then it's also looking at how, um, after that, Black people moving out of their countries voluntarily, but voluntarily in the sense that because of the underdevelopment, because of the challenges at home, they end up finding themselves going to Europe, going to Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, going to uh, Central America, South America, the United States in search of a better life. And so there's the forced uh, migration through the, the slavery, essentially, that took people from where from their home. But then there's also the out-migration because the conditions at home were such that it was very difficult to be able to live a high quality of life. But that's also tied to the underdevelopment on the continent, because if we had the kind of institutions that supported dignity and self-determination where people could thrive, then you wouldn't see as much of uh, the loss of, of, of human resources, loss of people in search of a better life else, elsewhere. So talk a little bit about the capitalism that you mentioned, because again, as individuals see the socioeconomic legacies of slavery, interestingly enough, many people say, well, if we just resolved issues for poor white people in Europe, uh, in North America, then black people will be just fine. And that that's the real legacy of slavery. What's your response to that? The response is that we have to look at the role of these global systems and how they have created conditions that people are experiencing around the world. And so when you have racial capitalism, we cannot talk about it without the the role of the transatlantic slave trade in requiring slavery, requiring an underclass, requiring poverty, essentially, for the enrichment of uh, those countries, European nations, the United States included, that used it to build their wealth. And so there is a direct relationship between the underdevelopment and exploitation of Africa and her resources, both human resources, as well as uh, minerals and the like, and the development of the West. And so as the West has has moved forward, industrialized, and built up this system that requires exploitation, it has been to the harm of Africa and wherever her people find themselves. And so we've got to link it also to issues of climate. Um, We are talking, everyone's now talking about the climate crisis, but this year alone, we had, or last year alone, 227 environmental defenders were murdered. These are people, mainly indigenous people, black folks, people in Central and South America, I think the highest number in Colombia, who are fighting against multinational corporations that have been exploiting land and destroying destroying lives and livelihoods. And yet we're having these climate crisis conversations and conversations about the environment without acknowledging how those things are tied in. Well, in fact, there are people who say that really climate, the crisis of climate change can date back to 1492. And given the fact that there's such resistance to understanding this history, in fact, legislation that's been proposed and even enacted in some states in the United States to make sure that children aren't taught about these things. Can you explain what some advocates mean by the climate crisis is a 1492 problem? 
Well, I think what what is meant by that is really tying the climate crisis to a global economic system that only perpetuates the climate crisis. So when you have a system in which corporations are driven for higher to higher and higher profits where they exploit the land where they exploit natural resources and where they exploit human capital human people for the purposes of profit it is not sustainable and so what that has created is is situations where we have the expanding Sahara, expanding further south. We're seeing these hurricanes, category five hurricanes becoming more common. We just had Hurricane Ida in Louisiana Louisiana last week, and we had hurricanes in the Caribbean the week before. And these things, these disasters are becoming much more common. And it is because of the environmental degradation that has occurred, largely because of the economic, global economic system that's in place that is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And this global economic system, this 1492, marks Columbus's passage, where in fact, uh, the exploitation of resources, human resources, enslaved people uh, from the coast of Africa, indigenous people in the Caribbean and other parts of the world were part of that transnational uh, campaign in many ways. That's capital and environment, isn't it? Yeah, the two are inextricably linked. And so what I find ironic is as as the climate crisis is is there's so much awareness. We have the COP26 summit taking place in Glasgow in just a few weeks. And yet there aren't enough conversations about what is the role of capitalism in perpetuating the climate crisis? And if we're really interested in addressing the climate crisis, we cannot put forth policies that are devoid of actually attacking the root causes, the things that are degrading the environment, the things that are destroying lives and livelihoods. And so that needs to be really pushed front and center. And also the issue of climate reparations. Africans are the least contributors to the climate crisis, yet they are bearing the brunt, whether on the continent, in the Caribbean or elsewhere around the world. Well, you know, what you're saying is actually sending chills. And there are two thoughts that I have, and boy, I could just spend uh, hours and hours with you. This is a conversation that has to go on repeat. So I'm thinking about a couple of things that one, there is really a kind of understatedness to the coverage that we see in traditional news media about slavery and capitalism, because many would kind of suggests that it's really industrialism, the industrial revolution that leads the United States, let's say, to a global economic power and perhaps the same in Europe. How do you disabuse people of that notion and that slavery and also European colonialism actually were the backbones of building those uh, the, the capital for those countries, those continents? Sure. I mean, we have to be honest. It was definitely slavery. It was colonialism, where these European countries essentially created uh, what I call company states out of uh, Africa. And that means these countries were formed for the purposes of enriching uh, the colonial entity, whether it was the UK, France, Belgium. Uh, I mean, that's documented history. And also we have to talk about imperialism and the use of force, the use of military and police to perpetuate the exploitation in these countries. We have to talk about how uh, so many individuals and leaders on the continent were assassinated precisely because they refused to go along with the program that would continue to exploit their people. So it comes with, there's a force 
component to it, imperialism and the use of violence to perpetuate the exploitation of resources uh, in these countries that resulted in being able to gain access to the minerals, natural resources, human capital that built up the West simultaneously harming uh, and inhibiting the progress of the global South. So very recently, you've lobbied at the United Nations in favor of the establishment of the UN Permanent Forum on People of African Descent. And you also penned an article for Ms. Magazine explaining why it's important. So why is it and was there pushback? I mean, in this day and age, one would think that Europe, uh, United States, uh, Caribbean, South America, Central America, there would be just full on board. We recognize this history. Let's jump on this and let's do some repairing. Was that the case? Oh, it wasn't the case, which was not 100% surprising, but it was still interesting to see it playing out in real time. So the permanent form on people of African descent is absolutely necessary now because we, the diaspora, the African diaspora is connecting in unprecedented ways now. We're recognizing the connectedness of the struggles that we're facing and also our power. So we're linking um, issues of state violence, whether in Colombia or Chicago. We're seeing similarities in the climate crisis, whether in Niger or in uh, Haiti. And so it is a space for us to now collectively strategize, dialogue, share our ideas, share our strategies for addressing these challenges that we face. And it allows us to do that in a way where we're all coming together under one banner. So it was absolutely important that we do this. And we did experience pushback. I mean, again, uh, the European Union, for example, was not uh, we, we found some resistance changing the language in the draft document that in ways that would weaken it. We also saw significant resistance from the UK, which definitely wasn't surprising given the release of their Sewell report, I, I believe a year ago, that basically said there was no racism in the UK. So that wasn't very surprising. But what we know is that as we come together collectively, the diaspora, yes, it's going to cause some apprehension perhaps on those who have benefited from our being disjointed and being separated, but we have to keep pressing forward. That's such an important point. And it, it makes me think about the fact that we're in a global pandemic. And as well, last year as part of that global pandemic, we saw stateside the deaths of Ahmad Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. In many ways, this was not new because every year we see such uh, dramatic violence, both private violence, Ahmad Aubrey, and also public violence by the police in the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. But what was interesting was its resonance around the world. Can you tell us just a little bit about that, that interconnectedness and why people felt a part of the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement taking place in the United States and launched such movements in countries around the world? It was really just a watershed moment and that that spark on a powder keg with the murder of George Floyd that no one could have predicted. But I just recall seeing as we were in uprisings, I was in Chicago at the time and we had massive uprisings here. And I recall seeing videos of people in Ghana uh, holding signs uh, protesting also about George Floyd. I saw the same with folks in Nigeria, folks in Kenya. Granted, they have their own issues with police and state violence there, but to see that that solidarity was, it was absolutely amazing and I think unprecedented. And what it did is it set off a wave of 
people standing up in their own respective countries to say, we need to, to lift our voices. This is our moment to really push for the kinds of changes that we know need to happen. And we saw it everywhere. In the UK, we saw statues of former slave owners uh, coming down. Also in the US, we saw NSARS in Nigeria that was sparked in October of 2020, which I think is a direct result of seeing these uprisings happening everywhere else as a result of George Floyd. And so it's a watershed moment that I think has changed the dynamics of our organizing and has also given us the ability to now start to connect in even deeper ways to continue to build on that momentum from last year. And so I want to connect um, the past with the present and also thinking about how these moments shape the future and reality for women of the African diaspora uh, to fill in a bit of the blanks there, because so often as history records the tragedies or even the triumphs of uh, slavery and overcoming it, much of race is rooted in thinking about how it affects men. Um, when one thinks about how systems of misogyny and sex discrimination uh, affect people, it's thought about within the context of white women, at least in the United States, and that tends to happen in Europe as well. So how do Black women fit in and their struggles and successes? I mean, Black women have been really it's just so much of a backbone in this work. I mean, whether it is in, at the front lines of, of many of these major fights. Also, when we talk about who, who has been affected, uh, it's been largely Black women. I mean, even after we were talking about Ahmaud Arbery, it was also Breonna Taylor. Um, before both of them, it was Sandra Bland. It was Corinne Gaines. I mean, we can go down the list of Black women who uh, have really been bearing the brunt and, and, and lifting, lifting our community up. That's also the case on the continent. I mean, I, I work now with my organization uh, with women in 20 different countries in Africa who are leading fights, whether on climate, against state violence, around issues of governance, and just really speaking up and using our, using our power to advance our communities. And I think it's important that we recognize that. And it's important that we actually acknowledge the role that we've played in building upon the successes that we've had as well, because the perspective that women bring to the table is absolutely critical. And I think it's what has created sustainability for so many of our fights. So this is our 15 minutes of feminism platform. And quite honestly, I could go 15 hours of feminism with you, uh, really, truly. So I'm looking forward to our next time. So one of the things that we do on every show is that we like to think about what comes next and what's the silver lining ahead. So can you help us out? What do you see, given all of the struggles over time, capitalism, slavery, the, the brunt of slavery being born on Black women's bodies, and also the victories in overcoming it, too, being part of the platforms that Black women have built. What comes next? Is there something hopeful within the context of thinking about the African diaspora? It's certainly hopeful. I mean, I feel so optimistic about where we are, mainly because I've seen us coming together in ways that I've never seen before. And we have tools in this day and age that we didn't have in the past, they can really connect the diaspora across geography, across language, 
um, and, and even across culture. And that's a powerful thing. I think moving forward, we're going to continue to connect with each other. We're going to see more building, more strategizing, um, and more just identifying those commonalities that we share. And what's going to come out of that is more effective organizing and more effective implementation of our vision for the kinds of societies that we know uh, will allow us to live with dignity and to be self-determining. So I think that we're actually moving into a space where we're going to start to see even more of the fruits of our labor, but it's because we'll have a more connected, more aware uh, diaspora that's really standing in solidarity with each other. Dr. Inya, thank you for joining me for our 15 Minutes of Feminism platform at Ms. Magazine. Thank you so much for having me. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of 15 Minutes of Feminism, part of our On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin platform at Ms. Magazine. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Amara Inya, for joining us and being part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is, as usual. It will be an episode you will not want to miss. For more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com and be sure to subscribe. Now, if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners and bring the hard-hitting content you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us to recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to hear about, write to us at OnTheIssuesAtMsMagazine.com, and we do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll and Oliver Hogg. Our social media intern is Lillian LaSalle. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, music by Chris J. Lee, and social media assistance from Lillian LaSalle. Stephanie Wilner provides our executive assistance.